Take your Bibles and let's look in the New Testament a couple of different places. We're going to land in 1 Peter chapter 2, but I'd like for you to start with me in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, but we're moving towards 1 Peter chapter 2. But first, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, uh, Paul is writing about God building up the spiritual house and how he's doing that uh, in each of us, making us collectively a, a wondrous dwelling place for the Spirit as well as individually indwelling us by his Spirit. And he says in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Man, there's a lot of truth there to unpack, but I'm, I'm really just wanting to move us towards this common thought that Paul and Peter had by the inspiration of the Spirit. And look what's happening here. He's bringing us together, verse 20, built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the prophets and the, and the apostles were building on the truths in which Jesus had spoken. Jesus is obviously the cornerstone. He's, he's what all of us are being built on. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God is doing something at Meadowbrook. He's doing something broader than Meadowbrook around the world. He is building a structure, joining us together into a holy temple in which his Spirit will dwell. So we just had a couple of teams come back from the mission field, one to Argentina, another to Uganda, really ministering to the South Sudanese there. And uh, they, those folks have a clear picture right now of the great church that God is building around the world that you and I are connected to. We're just a small part of that which is larger that the Spirit of God is doing. He's, he's bringing us together as a whole that the Spirit of God might dwell within. One day, that whole church will be brought together into the glories of heaven. And man, what a rejoicing that will be. What a song will be sung from the tongues of various languages and nations and tribes coming together in one as a holy temple in the Lord. Now with that thought, let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and let's build on that same concept because Peter is telling us that God is building this structure and he tells us more uniquely how he's building it. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 6 through 9, behold, God is saying, because he's quoting from the prophets here, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. So I'm one to mark in my Bible, as you know, and I would circle chosen and precious, and I would draw an arrow back to cornerstone because that's definitive of what the cornerstone is. So God is saying, I'm laying in Zion a cornerstone. Now, when you think of Zion, you ought to be thinking about Israel, specifically the Mount Zion where Jerusalem is. Namely, the very place where Christ himself was executed so that he might take our sin upon himself and give to us his righteousness in the resurrection. Zion is about a place and Zion is about a covenant that God was establishing in Jesus Christ. And it is ultimately going to be the place where Christ is going to make the capital of the world as he rules and reigns from the throne there on Mount Zion in the millennial kingdom. So when, when God is saying, I'm laying a stone 
born in Zion, that word Zion just blows wide, doesn't it? It helps us to understand God is doing something significant, but he's doing it in a very specific way. He is laying the chief cornerstone for this building, spiritual building, and his name is Jesus. Peter wants us to understand that. The prophets wanted us to understand that. Paul wanted us to understand that. The Holy Spirit obviously wants us to understand that. So he says, this cornerstone is chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and in the marvelous light. Glory be to God for that great work. I want to mention three points. The first is this. As foretold, God established Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of the spiritual house he builds one believer at a time. Jesus is the cornerstone in the buildings of God. Now, you and I know the foundations are absolutely crucial. Uh, when we were building this structure, we spent a lot of money on getting ready for the foundation and then a lot of money on the foundation. Because if you don't have the foundation right, the structure can never be right. So we know that's true in just our physical structures that we dwell in or we worship in. But God is helping us to recognize that is so much more essential for the spiritual house that he is building. So he says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. By the way, that metaphor is used three, on three separate occasions in the Old Testament, and in multiple times it's quoted throughout the New Testament. And as you see, Peter is zoning in here. He's zoning in on the 28th chapter of Isaiah, who is proclaiming this stone is going to be laid. So God is building a spiritual house, this temple, where his kingdom is going to, to be, and the spirit is going to reside. Now, as the preeminent builder, he knows that the cornerstone must be capable. It must be unique. It must be perfect. And so this chief cornerstone that is being placed by God for this house, this spiritual house, is none other than Jesus Christ. So when Paul's writing about the cornerstone, he is telling us that it is perfect and flawless as a stone. When you think of a precious stone, you think of one that is perfect and precious. Uh, when I was going to propose to Kay, it was my, my pleasure to squirrel away as much money as I could and then put on the payments, the rest of it, to buy a precious stone for her. I bought the best thing that I could buy. Now, some of you have out bought me. I get that. But when I was making $6 an hour, that's as good as it got. She still wears that with pride. It was as precious as I could find. The most flawless stone, that jeweler would give me that little loop and he would say, now look at that. And he would characterize all the color and the flawlessness of that stone or as close to flawless as $6 an hour could get. And um, it was precious. It was, it was perfect. 
That's the term that he's talking about here, but this is so utterly unique. It is, it is unlike anything else. This stone is absolutely perfect. To be able to have all the rest of the building measured off of it, this is the perfect stone. In fact, it is going to correct all the angles for the rest of the building. If you're thinking about a masonry building and you put the cornerstone down, you want to make sure that horizontally and vertically it is perfect because the rest of the building is going to be that. If you start off wrong, then you're going to finish wrong. But if you start off right, you've got a great chance of ending right. And that cornerstone is going to connect two separate walls, making them one in the structure. Everything about this stone has to be perfect. And God says, I'm going to lay it down. And that which I lay down is absolutely perfect. Who else but Jesus could be the perfect stone for this spiritual house that God is building? He's the chief cornerstone that corrects and sets all the other angles. He's the stone that connects both Jew and Gentile into one. He makes it so that we can live justified before God, making us vertically right with him and make it so that we would be empowered with the filling of his spirit's love so that we could be horizontally right in relationship with other people. Jesus is this precious stone. And Peter is declaring that to us so that we would just recognize that and give all honor and glory to him. No spiritual structure stands without the precious and chosen cornerstone Jesus Christ. Let me put that in other words. Every other religion is faulty and crumbling because the foundations are wrong. And we ought to be declaring that. Don't hold back from that. It's truth and it's love. It expresses that Jesus is the only foundation by which anything else could be built that's precious and right and flawless and righteous. Second, Jesus will not disappoint when our faith and life are in him and built upon him. So we confidently build our lives on Jesus and his word. In doing so, he makes us part of a magnificent eternal structure that never brings disappointment. It'll never fail us, never bring shame. If you look at the end of verse 6, it says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, from the Greek New Testament, we could translate that. At least the portion of this verse is, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or disgraced. You believe in him and you will not be disappointed. In other words, you don't have to worry about putting your hope in Jesus only to find out in the end you're disappointed. Peter's declaring that that is not going to be the way it is. To use modern vernacular is Jesus will not catfish you. Some of you are saying, what in the world is he talking about? If you're unfamiliar with the term catfish, let me explain it. It's a practice of somebody using a photo of somebody else claiming to be that person when in fact they are falsifying the account in hopes that they can get something out of the person that they are catfishing. No doubt the person on the other end, if it ever surfaces who that one is, who was catfishing, that person who was catfished is going to be ashamed and disappointed. And what Peter is saying is you will never experience disappointment or loss or shame if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let me lay it out for you. 
you don't have to be concerned that Jesus is not who he is portrayed to be in the Bible. He is exactly who he is portrayed to be. He's the real thing, perfectly depicted in the Bible. His words and promises are always true. It's been that way in history, and it is that way today in the present and forever be in the future. He is perfect and precious just as the Bible has said that he is. Jesus cannot disappoint. In fact, he is everything that your heart comprehends, to be, comprehends him to be in love and honor and glory and righteousness and everything else multiplied exponentially by a number that you cannot even fathom. He is much above what you believe him to be, never less than. And so in the end, there's this declarative that Peter is saying, you will not be disappointed in the end. You will not be brought to shame. So build your life on him. And when this life is over, you will not be disappointed. So we will be eternally secure in Christ, wonderfully, perfectly made in him, perpetually sharing and enjoying the richness of the inheritance that God the Father has entrusted to the Son, sharing that with us. No wonder we will not be ashamed. No wonder we will not be disappointed. Now look at this third part. Jesus is either the perfect and prized cornerstone to believers who share his honor or the stone that makes unbelievers stumble and the rock that crushes them in their disobedience. Now, I usually try to keep points fairly succinct. Uh, that one I couldn't bring down anymore. And there's, there's a choice here, isn't there? there there's an either or. Uh, maybe you're hoping somewhere in the middle. There is no middle ground. You're either believing and being honored by God in your belief, or you are disbelieving and will be crushed by God in judgment. That's, that's where he's laying this out. So we should note that Jesus is the perfect and prized one, whether we affirm that or not. He is that. Jesus is not reduced in any way just because somebody doesn't testify to what the truth is. He remains true to himself regardless if anybody is testifying of the obvious. Even so, every person one day will confess that he and he alone is Lord. They will know him as the perfect one. And the confessions will roll when their knee drops to the ground and they bow before him. However, because Jesus as Savior has revealed himself to us, poured faith upon us and moved in our heart to regenerate us, we believe in him earnestly and we desire to obey him. For those who are in Christ, his words are precious to us. So we obey them. For those who prize salvation, they work out that salvation that has been given to them as a gift with fear and trembling which means that we are actively pursuing obedience in the process of being sanctified, made holy, desiring not to live offensively to God with great respect and fear. And for those who revere his name, we live to honor him. Why? Because we revere him. So those who believe in him will be honored 
So our believing and obeying are part of God's goodness to us since those who believe and obey are never disappointed, never put to shame, never dishonored. First Peter is stating for us that those connected to Christ by belief and obedience will share in the honor that Jesus Christ has. So we ought to hang on that truth. We ought to hold on to that because God honors Jesus as the prized cornerstone and whoever believes in Christ shares in the honor that God has given to him. Now remember, Peter is writing to Christians who are intensely persecuted. He's writing to those who have had to leave Jerusalem and they have moved to the northern sections of that area into modern Turkey now and they are under intense maltreatment because of their belief and obedience in Christ. Unbelievers rejected Jesus and thereby they rejected the followers of Christ and it was evident in that day by the verbal onslaught that was continuous, by the physical attacks that were persistent and by the economic attacks that were devastating. And Peter gives the oppressed Christians significant hope when he reminds them that though the world seems to dishonor them, God honors them. Now in essence he's saying though the world attempts to heap shame upon you, because you believe and obey Jesus Christ, you will experience no shame throughout eternity. Now you and I need to take that and bring that first century reality right into our 21st century living. And think for a moment together about the climate of today's culture because there is a growing animosity toward the people of Jesus Christ. Many pro-abortion activists consider Christians their enemies, especially those who believe like Jesus Christ that all life is sacred and begins at conception and ought to be protected. And those who identify as progressives have animosity towards Christians because we are confident that God's word and his laws are absolute. Progressives desire to progressively move away from God's word, progressively move away from the holy standards of God. And biblically speaking, we hold on to those things. We don't want to progress away from that. We want that to be the standard in our lives. People identifying with the LGBTQ plus life choices oppose Christians because we exhort others not to live out of the parameters of God because God's blessings are not outside of his parameters. We trust God's word. We trust that God has made life and creation with a natural order that the Lord had very specific purpose behind that. And we believe and proclaim that Jesus Christ is insisting that all people be repentant of sins that are in denial of his true word and his true creative order. And because we do that, we are maligned by the world who wants to move away from God's word. We've noted in recent headlines that opponents of Christianity will fight us in the courtroom. They will attempt to shut down our businesses and they will attempt to get us fired from our jobs. In addition, unbelievers will shun and defame and ostracize those who are not walking in their insistence to be contrary to the commands of the Bible. The point is we should expect opposition and antagonism to increase not decrease. The answer is not going to be with who gets 
ushered into the Oval Office in the future or who sits in the halls of Congress in the future? The answer is not in that. The answer is Jesus will come and he will reset everything. And until he comes, this world is going to degrade more and more and you and I will persistently be dishonored by a world that hates Christ, his word, and his followers. And like Peter telling the people of the first century, you and I should recognize, stay the course. You will not be disappointed. You will not be dishonored. We should expect that kind of opposition and antagonism because it is exactly what Jesus experienced. Unbelievers raised against Christ. They tried to discredit and denounce him. They increased and elevated their activity of evil against him to the point that they were falsely accusing him, beating him, mocking him, convicting him, arresting him, and trying him, and then brutally killing him. And if they did that to our Lord, why would we not consider that they will do the same for the followers of the Lord? The good news is that the dishonor of Christ... And that which he experienced in all humiliation on the cross, naked and wounded and scarred and in pain and agony, all of that disgrace was short-lived because on the third day, it was glorious, wasn't it? And on the third day, man, was Jesus ever honored as he walked victoriously out of that grave. And so it will be for us. The more Jesus taught, the more antagonism came against him. The more he lived out the mission of, Christ, of, of God the Father, the more they came against him. And so it will be for us. But that dishonor is short-lived, my friends. There is a day in the resurrection where everything will be made different. So though the enemies of truth are increasingly bolder and more sinister in their opposition and defiance to God's word, more incredulous in their evil intentions, more defiant and obstinate, we must stand in the day of evil. And how do we stand? We stand with the full armor of God on and we stand with our mindset on eternal truth. We set our testimony on Christ and his word unabashed and we certainly know that Christ will not cause disappointment in the end but instead he will share his honor and glory with us now look again what Peter says about those who are unbelievers he says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone to their horror he is the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense one day I heard that an elderly friend of mine was in the ER she had fallen on concrete and banged herself up pretty bad. And a neighbor had called to tell me that she was in trouble. So I went to the ER to check on her and to pray with her. And sure enough, she was pretty bruised and battered. I asked her how it happened and she said, Randy, I just stepped down off the sidewalk, missed the step and just kind of tumbled face first onto the, to the asphalt. And then as if she needed to confess a little bit more to me and reveal a little more of the story, she said, well, actually I was at the Mexican restaurant, we pick up some nachos and a couple of margaritas, and while I was balancing that, I missed the step and tumbled. The nachos and the margaritas went one way and I went the other. 
I honestly to this day do not know which disappointed her more, that her face was messed up or that she lost her margaritas. <laughs> it's pretty common, isn't it, for people to trip over things and fall, miss a step. And when I do that, I immediately look, who saw me? <laughs> Is there a phone in their hand? Was there a camera going? And then I check to see if I can actually walk again. That's not the tripping that Peter is talking about. That's not the tripping that he's talking about. Because that's just common. You didn't see it. You missed the step. You stumbled over the rock, whatever it is. That, that, that is not what Peter is talking about. What Peter is talking about is they stumbled over what was obvious. They stumbled over a stone that is significant in size. I mean, the imagery is just absolutely ludicrous because a cornerstone of the temple of God, whether it's Solomon or Herod's, would be many, many tons. Well, there's a foundational stone just for the wall that's right now in Hezekiah's tunnels, which, by the way, I'll be going next March if you'd like to join me, you can see that kind of stuff, and we can talk about God's Word right there while we're in Israel. Information is in the handout for you. But one of the foundation stones for the wall alone is 54 tons, massive in size. So what an illustration for him to say they, they stumbled over that kind of stone. They stumbled over a cornerstone of all things. Now, how do you do that? I'll tell you how you do it. The scripture gives us some insight to how Solomon began to work on the temple when he was building it. And actually the stones for the temple were quarried from another region and they were brought into shape at that place and then brought to the temple where only minor modifications would be needed. In fact, the architect of the temple that Solomon had described was so incredible that it was like a 3D puzzle to him. And those stones would be brought in and he knew exactly where they would go. And he knew exactly how they would fit. And miraculously, by God's help and his spirit, that's what happened. So this stone is put into place. Now remember, the cornerstone is precious, right? It's unique. It's perfect. Every line about the stone is right. If you look down at horizontally, it's right. You look at it vertically, it's right. It is perfectly square, plumb. Everything about that building is measured off the cornerstone. Now here's what God is saying. I am laying the stone in Zion, a precious and chosen cornerstone. He's saying, I am doing this. And in essence, the unbelieving Jews were saying, we don't want Jesus as our cornerstone. And if you could, they removed the cornerstone and out of its place, put it in another place. You are over there. And then Peter says, they tripped over that. And not only did they trip over Jesus being the cornerstone, what they fell over actually wounded them, and when they went down, it crushed them. That's what he's saying to unbelievers. 
you attempt to move Christ out of the place that God has laid him as the foundation for all spiritual houses, this incredible spiritual house that he's building together one person at a time, you attempt to move him out of that place and you will not just trip over him, but he will crush you in the end. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, some of you get a little bit squirrely when we use the word destined. Predestined, chosen, elected, all those kind of words get you a little bird up. Uh, and I would say that's pretty easily done until you have to stand before a few hundred people and teach words like that. And then it requires you to dig deep into Scripture. And you can't just pass over them because they are listed so many times in the Scripture. You can't just kind of like jump over it and go to a next verse that you're not so squirrely about. You have to kind of hang out. What is he talking about there? What do I know in the totality of Scripture this coming in agreement with? What, what, what is he saying here when he's saying that it was destined to be? Well, I am certain of this, that Peter isn't suggesting that God destined people to be disobedient unbelievers predestining them to sin and receiving eternal damnation. That is not the destination that God has intended. Instead, rejectors of Christ Jesus and his gospel receive judgment that their disobedience demands. And in their sin, God destined them to judgment. By the way, every one of us are in the same place there. Outside of Christ Jesus, we all find ourselves there. But notice the opening words of verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Here's where God injects remarkable grace. For all people have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of us are in need of God's grace in our sin. However, God has ordained our rescue. In our sin, God has ordained our rescue, choosing us, choosing us to be a chosen race. And such a truth is just over and over in the New Testament. Here's one of them. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were immersed, baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he's saying to the church in Galatia, all those dividing walls that the world has built up and all those things that people try to separate you with, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all those ways that people put you in boxes and categories, God has chosen you to be one. He's building one house, one spiritual house. By his own choice, he's rescuing us out of our sin and out of our judgment that was resting upon us because 